Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. I'm your host, Caleb Moore, and today is a brother from another mother, maybe literally related, is Mark Moore. Mark, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm sure we're related at least going back to Noah, so I, it's fair <laughs> statement. So, somewhere, somewhere back there. Now, I, I asked Mark on, A, I, last year I did his Core 52 book, and I think it was actually that that turned out to be a pretty popular book for you, didn't it? Yeah, it's, it's probably sold more than any other book that that I've ever done. And I don't know that it's the best book I've ever written, but it certainly hit a need for people who, man, they just want it. They just want to know the Bible. So uh, it, we came out with the regular standard edition that you probably did. And then they yep. said, hey, could you do one for students so that a mom and dad could do it with a teenager? And then my daughter we're sitting in, in, in my backyard and she goes, Hey dad, I love this, but I want something for Jackson. And Jackson was eight at the time. And I go, well, write it. And she goes, I can't write a book. I said, what are you talking about? You're a public school teacher. You got four kids. You're my daughter, Bible college trained. And so she gave me the first five chapters and it, it moved me, Caleb, because I really? could see my grandson reading it. And I just, it, it, it came out last November's core 52 family is for parents with kids who are six to 10. And one of the guys I, I just taught a grad class at my old alma mater, Ozark Christian college. And he sent me a video of him laying on the bed with, you know, taking a, taking a video of he and his, his adopted daughter. She's eight years old. She just got baptized because of what she read in that book with her dad. So it's super cool stories like that. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know there was a family one. I have three boys that are nine, six, and three. So for two of those, that's right in that perfect <laughs> age range. Uh, yeah, for those of you who are watching, family. for those of you who are watching on YouTube, uh, this is the book core 52. And essentially you just kind of break down, you, you, you take big themes in scripture and like any good preacher, you're going to break them down a little bit to where they're digestible. But what I like is, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your goal is to give people uh, the big picture. Uh, just like here's here's yeah. what you need to know, so you understand the smaller segments of scripture. Yeah, and it's so we I serve at a this massively large church here in Phoenix, and we got a lot of people that man they want to know God and they want to serve God, but they're busy people, a lot of successful people, and they're going okay, just just give me the cliff note version because. What we know about growth personally as a Christian is Bible reading four days a week or more is the most important habit you have to go further, faster in your faith. We also know, and preachers like me, like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the hit on this one. It's our fault because we want people to know everything we know, and they just sit back and go, "Yeah, that's not, that's not happening for me." We also know why people don't read the Bible. It's too big and it's too old. But if we could make it relevant and if we could give it to them in bite-sized pieces, they will dig in. So I just went through scriptures and I thought, okay, what are the 52 verses that I keep hearing preachers preach about because it keeps changing lives? And we just gave six pages for each scripture with four more days of like, let's put into this into practice. Let's meditate on it. Let's, let's think through it. Let's do something about it. And because it was bite-sized, you now have people who have the 52 pillar points or pivot points through scripture. And as they read on their own, they're able to make way more connections now that they have these kind of anchors to hold on to. Now, our audience tends to be like a little bit more theologically deep. And so even if you go, well, I kind of know all that stuff, I want to encourage you. It's it's great because not only does it cover a subject that you might be familiar with, but it encourages you to memorize it, right? To yeah. meditate on it. it. It encourages you to develop spiritual disciplines. And so I know a lot of people who are deep thinkers and they understand deep theology, but they lack spiritual discipline. They, mm. they don't know what it means to meditate. They don't know what it means to spend that extended amount of time to really like, I want to memorize this verse. The, the only thing that helps me memorize verses, because uh, I deal a lot like uh, evangelizing a Mormonism, uh, Mormons is one of my favorite things. 
And so I, I memorized all those verses because I knew I was going to need them. Right. But memorizing scripture, you will need it if you memorize it. I find that when I learn something, then God presents an opportunity for me to use a verse that I have learned or memorized. So it's it's a great way to help you like take that intentionality and memorize scripture. For sure. And part of what we did, Caleb, is uh, I did a six-minute teaching video for every chapter. So you can go to core52.org or just look it up on, on YouTube, look at core 52 and there's all of those teaching videos. I also did a three-minute memorization video. So you can literally memorize the verse with me as I'm memorizing it with those little, little uh, kind of, no, I've been memorizing scripture for a long time. So I have a few secrets of how to make it faster, how to make it a little, little stickier. So you're right. If, if you're listening to this or maybe watching on, on YouTube right now or Facebook, if you're, if you are serious and say, man, I, you know, I'm a, I, I know the Bible well, so I don't need like an introductory guide. Okay, great. Here's my challenge. Then teach someone else through it. Because the, the fact, if you really want to grow deeper in your faith, explain a scripture to someone else. And that's what Core 52 can do for you. Yeah, you think you understand it. And then you try to explain somebody and they ask you a question about it. And you have like, uh, I haven't thought about that at all. Like I don't, you know, so you, you need that, that explainability uh, is good. Now I want to know, what are your secrets for memorizing scripture? You you kind of dropped a hint there, but yeah. what are some tools that you use to help you memorize better? Well, let me let me just spew out four or five of them. The, sure, the, sure. The one that is most sticky for me is simply repetition. So I take a chunk of scripture, um, let's say Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so I just repeat it until I can't say it wrong. And then I add another segment to it. But, and I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for this, Caleb, because sure. you can't really memorize scripture best without it being a full body experience. So if you will add to it a simple motion, you will receive power. You'll receive power. You'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I just cross my <laughs> thumbs and like yeah. act like the You'll see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. I'm taking my finger from my lips and pointing it out. You'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, where we are, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if you're not watching on Facebook, you just missed all the other actions. But <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, I do this, if I do this verse um, as an illustration with teenagers in particular and the best time to learn to memorize scripture is uh, around age 12. Your, the way God designed your brain is at that stage of development, you are a sponge for memorization. So this is, this is where we should start memorizing scripture. So I do, the, do the, the motions and then I say to the students, okay, we're just going to do the motions. Do not think about it. And I do the first motion. Yeah. I go, well, no, I told you, don't think about it. And they go, okay, I'll try to do the motions. No, I said, don't think about it. When you have the motions, you can't not think about the words you just did. So that, that, that's another trick. A, a, a third trick is for some who are more uh, verbal or visual, you can write it out on a whiteboard and then read it out loud erase one word, read it out loud, erase another word, read it out loud, erase another word, read it out loud. That is a really helpful trick. The most important thing for memorizing scripture though is three, three, three. It takes three minutes to memorize a verse, but you won't have it memorized the next day. You'll forget it. Right. And it will take you another minute to re-memorize it. You go the third day, you memorize you have part of it, but not all of it. It takes three days to actually memorize a verse. So the three, three, three is you have to you do, do it three minutes one day, and then you have to do that for three days, and, and then you have it memorized, and then repeat it every day for three weeks. If you do three minutes, three days for three weeks, you will never forget that verse. Interesting, yeah. Okay, some of that I'm gonna to have to try to apply. My people say, how do you memorize scripture? 
And I say same way that I memorized lyrics to a Bob Dylan song. I never sat down with the notes. You know, you never, you never sit there and like read. It's just, I've heard it so many times that it's a part of my life now. Um, now, so the verse you mentioned is from Acts. Uh, I'll come back to Core 52 here in a little bit because there's a couple of themes in your book that I want to hit on. But uh, this is your commentary uh, that I have that you wrote on Acts. I preached through Acts about 10 years ago. We just started um, last week, I think, was our first Sunday back in Acts. It might take us a year and a half, two years to get through it here at our church. Um, That's pretty fast. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, why, why did you write this? Like, why did you, of all the books of the Bible that you could expand upon, what is it about Acts that attracted you to it? Well, I was teaching the book at a college level, so there is that. But if you understand Acts, you have the template for evangelism, for ministry, for church growth, for leadership, for personal discipleship. I mean, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind book in the New Testament, and it's written by a one-of-a-kind author. He's the only Greek author of, or non-Jewish author of the entire Bible. And I, 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 like, I love Luke because he was super intellectual and yet also very compassionate. And those mm -hmm. often don't, don't go hand in hand. And according to ch church tradition, I can't prove this, they also said he was a painter. So you've got an mm. artist, theologian, historian, medical doctor, and social worker. And this is a totally irrelevant story. But one day I was uh, in St. Peter's in Rome, the big Catholic church, and up in front to the left, I'd been there several times, but I'd never, they have a little museum that has all the papal vestments in there. And so I thought, okay, I'll go ahead and pay my five, you know, five euros and get in. And I'm seeing these gold and the robes and it, a lot of money in there. And then off to the corner was a skull encased in sterling silver. I thought, oh, well, that's interesting, a little macabre. But I went to the sign and it said the skull of St. Luke. It was on loan from Prague. Of course, Prague's never getting it back. And I read later about that, that the skeleton of Luke is apparently in southern Italy. And after modern medicine realized that the base of the skull and the top of the skeleton are lock and key, and the, the tradition of both the skull and the skeleton go back to the fourth century. In the 19th century, they put them together and lo and behold, it's the same person. So I may have actually seen the skull of one of my superheroes in the Bible. So, I mean, you think there is some legitimate evidence that that is actually Luke's skull? I think there's legitimate evidence. Interesting. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, you know, I'm not putting Luke on a pedestal like of divinity, but we got some heroes of the faith. Sure. And the, the church has a pretty good idea of where Peter is buried, where Paul is buried, where John is buried. And, uh, you know, of course, these guys that may, meant so much to so many are really people pay attention to them. Yeah, no, I, I had no idea about that. I didn't know we we possibly had Luke's skull. Um, you know, I'd been to Israel, and I know you uh, have hiked Israel. Maybe we'll have time to talk about that for a second. But you go to Israel, and they're like, this is the tomb of Jesus. And then, well, actually, this is the tomb of Jesus. Yeah. And so I didn't know. Sometimes it's hard to know how much of this is just tradition. Somebody owns some land. and like, hey, we can make some money if we say this was so-and-so's area. And then how much of it can we actually know? Archaeology is not my thing, so I have to take people's word for it on that stuff. Um, yeah, well, what is? Part, well, you want to talk about Acts, so let's let's go to Acts, and then I'll yeah, tell yeah. you what we found in Israel recently. All right, all right, don't let me forget. So, Acts is also one of those books that is highly controversial. A lot of my life here in Oklahoma, uh, we're surrounded by Oral Roberts University. The the we're kind of the seedbed. Uh, the original seedbed of prosperity gospel, name it, yep. claim it kind of stuff. And so I, I have to fight that stuff all the time. I, I can go and try to get a 
smoothie drink. And the guy's telling me that if I just proclaim health over my body, I'll be healed. And if I'm not healed, it's because I have unconfessed sin, right? That is normal around here. And acts is usually the justification for a lot of that teaching. Where is it that people diverge from what acts is really saying to what they want it to say? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question, Caleb, and it's a complicated one because, and we, we I'm part of a tribe of churches. You are as well. That we want to go back to the original church, which realistically is impossible. But we at least want to get back to the original ideas and the original practices of the church. That as the church began to expand, its practices really morphed to fit the cultures. Now, they're still taking communion. They're still being baptized by immersion. There's no question about that. But for example, uh, when you go into Ephesus, you got these guys in Acts 19 that are, uh, they've already been baptized, but they don't know about Jesus. So they're baptized into John the Baptist. And Paul says, okay, you need to be baptized in your faith in Jesus. And when he does, he lays hands on them and they speak in tongues and prophesy. If is that normative or is that the unusual? Well, in the book of Acts, there are three places where they speak in tongues. All three places, the speaking in tongues does not appear to be the normative practice of every believer. It, it appears to be evidence of a new movement where there are demon possessions, demon exorcisms in Acts. It's where the gospel is going into a new place. So here's what I would say. Of course, the prosperity gospel is nowhere in Acts. It's nowhere in the Bible. Jesus says, take up a cross and and follow me. That's not prosperity gospel. And he went into a pool of Bethesda and healed one guy out of many. That's not prosperity gospel. So the... I'm putting the prosperity gospel aside for just a minute and talking about all of the charismatic manifestations where the gospel breaks new territory. You expect to see some unusual events because you're taking a new message into a culture and it's got to make room for it there. The Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit often does things that I would not be comfortable with when the gospel is going into new areas just because of the necessity of breaking new ground. I'm not really giving a good answer to your question because it's, yeah. it's a complicated question to get into because you have to look moment by moment and event by event of if there is unusual, miraculous activity, is that to be normative or is that, to be, is that because of necessity? That really is the question that needs to be taken passage by passage. But this whole when, idea of yeah. God wants you healthy, God wants you wealthy, is absolute. There's absolutely no evidence of that either in the Gospels, in the Epistles, and certainly not in the Book of Revelation. And if that's what healthy Christianity looked like, then Jesus and all the disciples failed to be healthy Christians because yeah, they didn't. Sure. Yeah, they didn't have health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, yeah, I mean, even now when Paul I said, said he, he for much of his ministry. Uh, he was hand to mouth and he had a thorn in the flesh. So if, if, if faithful people have health and wealth, Paul was not faithful and nobody believes that. Right. Now, when I teach on uh, Pentecost, when the, the Holy Spirit falls, I always point out that they, there was actually a receiving of the Holy Spirit 50 days before Pentecost. And I believe it's John that mentions that. Um Am I right to say, I'm a big believer, you know, you say, uh, we all want to go back to the original church and people look at Acts 2. And I go, why stop there? Let's go to Genesis 1. That's the original church, right? I want to be a Genesis 1 church. I can't be an Acts 2 church, so I might as well try to be another church I can't be, which is Genesis 1. Which I have the understanding that the following of the Holy Spirit is a reversal of Babylon, where the languages are separated and then they come back together. And I also see hints of the inauguration of a temple. So in the Old Testament, when a temple was inaugurated, there might be wind, there might be uh, fire, there might be, there, there's, those aspects are present 
uh, when a temple is inaugurated and then mm. the Holy Spirit falling that we become the new temple that we are inaugurated. Am I off base on that? Or do you see, do you see those connections as well? Well, I've never seen that connection and I really like it. And I'll tell you why I'm going to use a big word recapitulation. Sure. Yeah. Recapitulation is when something is started and it just goes wrong and right. Jesus comes back and does it right. So here's an example. When Jesus was baptized, why was he baptized? Well, John the Baptist was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. It is the exact phrase of Acts 2.38, for the forgiveness of sins. And we go, well, no, Jesus could not have been baptized for forgiveness of sins because he had no sins. Well, wait a second. Why was he crucified? For sins. Mm -hmm. Not his sins, but for the sins of the nation. I, I am convinced that Jesus was baptized as the embodiment of Israel in the Jordan River. At, and I've been at this spot. You have too. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's in the Jordan River where Israel crossed into the promised land the first time. And yeah. then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. For how long? 40 days. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Oh, 40 years. So that's not the same, is it? It actually is because... Israel, God did not intend Israel to be in the wilderness for 40 years. God intended Israel to be in the wilderness for 40 days. And in 40 days, they get to the promised land, send in the spies, and come back out and say, yeah, we can't do it. And God said, okay. I mean, you could have gone in in 40 days. You spent 40 years. So Jesus comes along and redoes it right, even with the right amount of time in the wilderness, 40 days. So when I hear you say... You have a temple that's inaugurated with wind and fire and the new temple of the church inaugurated with wind and fire that sends off a, a kind of a, 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 a green light for me going, yeah, we're doing it right this time mm -hmm. where all peoples have access, not only physically to the temple, but even linguistically to the temple come as you are. Yeah. I mean, we start with a, a tree and we end with a tree in revelations, you know, so it's, we're going backwards. The way forward is backwards. That's the way Christianity often is. It's, it's those who want to be first will be last. And so to go forward, you go backwards kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think I read cool. it. I think I read it in your commentary. Uh, the number 40 actually has meaning behind it. Is that, did I get that from you? Yeah. Um, the Jews do not have a separate numbering system. They just have an alphabet. So right. A is one, B is two, C or Gimel is three, uh, D is, is four. And they assigned not just value, numeric value to their names, but numeric, like numbers for the Jews are not to be counted as much as they are to be weighed. So if you take three, which is the number of God, and four, which is the number of humanity, add them together, what do you get? Seven. Oh, God completed the earth in seven days. In Revelation, seven eyes, seven horns, seven lamps, seven trumpets. Mm -hmm. Take three and four and multiply them, and now you have 12, as in the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Take 10, which is the number of completion, and you can add it to four, and it's the it's the completion of humanity. So it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. When God completely wiped out humanity, it's appropriate 40 days and 40 nights. The temptation of Jesus, it was the complete temptation of his body, 40 years in the wilderness. It was the complete correction of the people of, of Israel. So absolutely, those, those numbers all have uh, significance. You know, I never heard that stuff in church growing up. You, you hear 40... 40 years, you just think, well, it was 40 years and God just seems to really like the number 40. And I'm, you're never given an explanation. It might not have literally been 40. It's we're using this number to communicate right. something that their time in the wilderness was complete. And that says more to me than giving me a specific date or a specific amount of time. Yeah. And in fact, let me, let me throw a couple others out that I think are just, beautiful. I love it, please. Yeah. You don't get numerology in Luke because he's not Jewish. But how does Matthew begin his gospel? 
with the genealogy. Mm-hmm. There were three sections in the genealogy. Matthew 1.17 says there were 14 generations from Abraham to, da- to David, 14 from David to exile, and 14 from the exile to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever counted the actual names? No. There should be 42. Mm-hmm. There's only 41. And you go, wait a second, did Matthew miscount? Wait a second, Matthew miscount? The tax collector miscount? Yeah. I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah. He actually uh, did a very Jewish thing. And back in Chronicles, it gives the same list of names. There are actually 14 generations in section A, and there are actually 14 generations in section C. But in section B, there's 17 names. So Matthew... But it's, it's no problem leaving out some names of horse horse thieves and people you don't want. Like the, the Jews are not Mormons. They don't care about the exact right. precision of the genealogy. So there's no harm, no foul if he if he truncates it. But to call it 14 when it's actually 13, that would be a, an interesting dilemma. And he had 17 to work with. So why 14? Because, or why 13? Because he is being very Jewish and giving the primary son, the double portion, and he counts David twice. Now, here's where it gets super yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. The name David in Hebrew is spelled with three letters, D, V, D. Uh-huh. D is the fourth letter of the alphabet. V is the sixth letter of the alphabet. If you add them together, David's name is the number 14. And if you're a Jewish rabbi, you're going, okay, I don't believe in Jesus, but all right, that's cool. Like, it's really yeah. interestingly cool. <laughs> yeah. It, there, there are these kind of uh, Easter eggs all throughout the Bible. And I suppose the reason that we don't typically preach them in church is people come in hurting. They, want, they just need to know how to survive tomorrow with a kid who's on drugs. They, they just right. need to know how to get through their next appointment with the divorce lawyer. And so some of this teaching is for maybe like your audience, they want to go go deeper. And if you do want to go deeper, the Acts commentary I wrote, honestly, Caleb, it's probably the best book I've ever written from an academic standpoint. And what the reason that I wrote, I never did answer that question. The reason I wrote it is so my students would have a contemporary commentary, but also I added two um, additional details, and it's it's it was not in the book itself. It was actually in an online resource. Every time I quote an ancient author or cite an ancient author, uh, when 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 Peter, for example, says we must obey God rather than men, that's actually a quote from Socrates, the philosopher, and Luke, the Greek, is showing Theophilus how this Peter. Common fisherman is actually as wise as Socrates, the most famous uh, philosopher. All of those quotes I put in an online document. So the, the first century literature that I cite, that document is longer than the actual commentary itself. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I offer are uh, geotags for every location in the book of Acts there's an online uh, list of the geotags that allow you to find those. And right now we're redoing my website, so I don't have those. So I, let me send you that document sure. of all the original sources and the geotags, and you can save it in a link on this podcast. But Absolutely, the geotag yeah. allows you to copy and paste that into Google Earth, and then Google Earth will like people take photos all over the place they put them on google earth you will have thousands of pictures taken from that spot in each of in these locations so it's a it's just a great resource for teaching through the book of acts as well that's part of what i wanted to give to my students in the book of acts that really helps it kind of come to life you know and i've i went with my dad to israel about five years ago and all the things that you see and hear and you read in the Bible, it, it, if you've never been in many people's eyes, it might as well be Middle Earth. It might as well be, you know, never, never land. It's right. But when you put your feet on the ground and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh, 
So I've really been encouraging people, uh, especially parents uh, with younger kids, start to save now to take your kids 100%. to the place where it all happened. Yeah, Disney World's great. Disney World's fun. They'll have great memories, but it won't change their life. That's right. Right. I, I, I love that you're I love that you're doing that and encouraging parents to uh, to do that. <clears throat> I let me tell you one thing that we discovered the last time we were over there. In 2009, archaeologists uncovered Magdala. Mm -hmm. It was because uh, a group was wanting to build a a vacation resort right on the Lake of Galilee. And they ran across some archaeology and that stops everything. The Catholic Church bought up the property and lo and behold, they found a synagogue. Mm -hmm. And in this particular synagogue, they found a stone that was about two feet wide, foot and a half or maybe about a foot tall and a foot and a half uh, deep. It had it was they don't know exactly what it was used for, but it had a carving of the temple on it. It is the mm -hmm. only image of the temple that was made while the temple was still standing. So it's a hugely important piece. And the, the place that they identified it is Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Yeah. So I was, I was there this last spring and I was staying in the retreat center inside the archeological site. I'm looking at the, the like the, there's a glass door there. And I thought, well, they can't lock that door because of fire code. So I just went out into the archaeological site by myself at night. Yeah. And there's two things that I observed that blew me away. Josephus, the historian, actually was a general at the year of 66 when the Romans invaded. And he records in his book that they put up pillars to block the entrance of the city from the Romans. The pillars are still there laid across the gate of the city after 2000 years. Wow, not incredible. Because of COVID, they have done a lot of archeological work unimpeded with tourists. And one of the things they uncovered at Magdala is a home that is 4,000 square feet. It's huge. Mm -hmm. It's right next to the synagogue. Now, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7, she's not named. Right. I have always assumed that she was named in the very next chapter, Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. it, that makes sense, right? right? If that's true, I've been in Simon the Pharisee's house mm -hmm. where she anointed his feet. Because yeah. that house, that that is going to be the rule of the synagogue's house. It had, yeah. it had four mikveys at the entrance. Those are uh, yeah. uh, ritual baths for baths. ceremonial yeah. cleansing. And it had one room that had a mosaic in it. And that would be the floor of the banquet hall. As I'm standing there looking at it, all of a sudden, it, it just was so real to me. I could almost hear the voices. And if you want to take, if you really want to grow your children in the faith, take them mm -hmm. as early as age 12 to Israel yeah. and let them see that these are not fairy tales and myths because when they get into college, it's exactly what their professors are going to tell them that yeah. we don't really know. And maybe Jesus wasn't really a, a real person. Once you, once you have the dust of Israel and, uh, and the soles of your feet, all that becomes nonsense. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, a couple more questions here. I want to try to see if we have time to get to, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, so we talked about the gifts of tongues. Uh, how do you understand prophecy as it relates to like in the book of Acts and just in the church in general? Because we do see like there does seem to be saying some of you will have this gift of tongues. Some of you will have this gift of prophecy. Do we understand prophecy rightly? Has it changed from Old to New Testament? Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I had a professor one time say how how much a prophecy is predicting of the future and how much a prophecy mm -hmm. is God's revelation about the present warning that you need. I'm a, well, it's 90% about the future. Actually, it's the opposite. 90% yeah. of prophecy is about oh, a current warning. Now, it's, prof it's prophetic in that God gave you a message. 
but it's not predictive like Old Testament prophecy, some of Old Testament prophecy is. But again, the majority of Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is not about the future. It's about the present, and it's a warning about the present. And the nations are going to have this punishment if they don't repent, and Israel's going to go into uh, exile in Babylon if they don't repent. So if we look at prophecy not merely as predicting the future, which honestly... I don't, <laughs> I don't trust anyone who says they can predict the future prophetically right. or not. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, I cannot identify except for one passage that the future was accurately predicted and interpreted. And that is in the book of Daniel. He was reading Jeremiah. It said the exile would be 70 years. And he knew it would be 70 years. That is the only example of a predictive prophecy being fulfilled or being understood before it was fulfilled. And even then, he didn't know when this, if the 70 years started at 605 BC or 586 BC when the Babylonians invaded. Now, so having said that, I do believe that God still gives insight to people, particularly while they're preaching the gospel of Jesus. It may be an insight into how someone is feeling or insight into what someone is thinking. I had, Caleb, um, it's been years ago, I was preaching at a little church in Atlanta, and I was going through Revelation, oddly enough. And I was just drawn to this girl. She was 16 years old, kind of goth. And I just started talking to her for about three minutes, which is a very long time if you're a 16-year-old girl to have someone focus on you from the pulpit. And I said, you know, Satan will, Satan will promise you power. He will promise you popularity, but he will lie to you. And he will, if you give him your life, he will destroy you. Mm-hmm. Well, I had no idea, but that is exactly what her friends had said to her that week. She came on Wednesday night to the youth group and said, I'm not coming back because my satanic friend said, if I will give my life to Satan, he will give me power and he will give me popularity. So I'm not coming back. And they Mm -hmm. pleaded with her, just come for the weekend, come for the revival. She goes, okay. She gave her life to Christ that night. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like a, like a story like, oh yeah, yeah. Three years ago, like that was, that was 20 years ago. Three years ago, I saw that youth minister again, I, and I asked her, how, like, how, was that, how was that girl doing? She goes, she's right over there. She's a sponsor for the kids now. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, if you'll allow me to use that definition, sure, I don't yeah. ever limit what God can do. Yeah, I am always skeptical when someone uses any of the spiritual gifts, and, and tongues is the most abused spiritual gift. Why do I say that? Can you name any other spiritual gift that someone uses for themselves? Like mm-hmm. you don't preach to yourself. You don't give money to yourself. You don't serve yourself. But so much of tongues and prophecy is used for self-promotion or self-medication. Uh, and I just don't see that as a valid use of spiritual gifts. Yeah, that's true. It does seem to be more self-gratifying. Um that I've achieved, I've achieved a level two. I've ranked up, right? You know, I was, I've been playing on level one. I had the Holy Spirit, but then the fire fell. And, and it's always interesting, you know, they say, well, it's just like an Acts second chapter. I said, but where's your fire in your wind? Where's your fire or, in your wind? You picked the, the one. Languages. Yeah. 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 That, and everybody's, nobody's understanding what you're saying. Uh, so it, it's, it's a real, I don't, I don't know how we overcome that as, the church, because uh, it's everywhere and it's become so cultural. Um, I, I, I see it as very divisive. And I'm, I'm going to say something that, that might shock you. Uh, we totally ignore it at our church. If someone wants yeah. to practice tongues in their own personal life, fine. We're not going to do it publicly because yeah. we're not going to spend the time um, at getting an interpreter up for it. We, mm-hmm. at the same time, God can use all our nonsense. And yeah, sure. I just called it nonsense. So I apologize if, if you're a tongue speaker and you took offense at that. I, I'm sorry. But I have my own nonsense. We all have our own nonsense. 
Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if you're a tongue speaker, using it to heal yourself or to speak privately, I'm not critical of that. I just don't see that as a, a valid biblical uh, use of any spiritual gift. But mm-hmm. if that's what you're doing and it's good for you, I have no criticism of that. I think the Holy Spirit can use all, even our deficiencies and immaturities to glorify himself and bring people to Jesus. When I was in Egypt preaching among people that were absolutely anti-Christian, their favorite preacher was Benny Hinn. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. And they go, no, the, the, he, the power he uses, and I think he abuses it. I think he misses you, yeah. uses it. But that attracted some people's attention. And so I just go, you know, God, good for you. And I yeah. watched my wife when my kids were little use their nonsense to grow maturity in them. And I watched God do the same thing with me. So I don't have time to be critical of other people's practices. If they're if they are hurting the body of Christ, I'm gonna speak up. If not, yeah. I got more important things to talk about. I think that's wise. You know, we I, I'm certain we have people in our church that um, say they use that gift. Um and we're we're open-handed on non-essentials and i hold to that pretty closely like hey you know i can understand why some people view it that way uh i'll be open-handed about it but yeah if i can reduce confusion in somebody's life and help them pray a little bit better um it's hard to know if a prayer has been answered if you don't know what you prayed and i want right, to right. see their faith grow right um back to core 52 for just a second so i think i, I appreciate your your commentary on acts a lot even if you go, Caleb, I don't read commentaries. Um, I, I hardly have time to read books. I would much rather read a commentary than some kind of Christian light book because all it is is it's just expanding upon what God has already said. And it breaks things down in such a way that are manageable to me. I, I don't have a seminary degree. So I need these things to to enrich and grow my life. And I find them uh, extremely edifiable. So thank you for writing that book. I appreciate it. Um, core 52, there's a couple of things, um, you talk about the image of God and, uh, there was two things that I found, uh, interesting, uh, one, your description of holiness and one, your understanding of the image of God. Maybe you could speak on both of those. Yeah. When I was thinking through, let me talk about holiness first, because that, that, uh, that really is the whole book of Leviticus. Which, by the way, is the very first book that little Jewish boys memorized. Yeah. And you think, why? <laughs> well, because if you have ADHD, fire, animals, blood, and knives are fascinating. Mm-hmm. But the, the point of holiness is we almost always think about holiness as achieved. And mm-hmm. we almost always think about holiness as what we avoid. I don't smoke. I don't get drunk. I don't sleep around. But holiness primarily is received, that you that God puts his hand on you and says, you are mine. People who struggle with their personal ethics or personal morals or public ethics, feeding the widows or, or help, helping those who are distraught, it is because they don't feel worthy. And we think that we need to feel worthy before we can be of value to God. But if you recognize that you receive worthiness from God, then the achieved holiness is way easier. Because what motivates me is not my own ego and self-aggrandizement. It's the connection I have. And if I feel loved, and if I feel accepted, if I feel valued, then it's easier for me to change my behavior. Because so much of your behavior is tied to identity. Around here, we talk about it like this, that a lot of churches are uh, believe, behave, belong. Get, get your act right. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then you, and then you for, first of all, you believe the right things. And then you behave the right way. And then you can belong. We've tried to switch that to, hey, you can belong here. Even if you disagree with us, we're, we're going we're gonna to welcome you into our community. And then as you believe... It is your belief and your belonging that helps you behave. I hope that's a message that uh, churches can really grab a hold of so people can achieve holiness 
because of what they've already received in Christ, the declaration, you are holy because you are mine. Now, the Imago Dei, that is the image of God. Gosh, if there's one chapter that I wish everyone would read, it's that one, chapter two, where we are created in God's image. And God has certain characteristics. Humans have certain characteristics. And animals have certain characteristics. And there's some shared characteristics between human and animals. And there's some shared characteristics between God and humans. Let me just tick some of those off. Some things that God and humans share that animals don't. Time. First thing you do in the morning is look at a clock. Why? Because you have the image of God in you. God is concerned with time as well. Even though he's above time, he brokers in time. Language, words. No animals write poetry. No animals do novels. This is something that God does. It's something that humans do. No animal eats communally. Now, lions will gorge at the same time. But no one's invited to the meal. No one sets the table. No one pulls out special china. We decorate our tables because they are, they're, they're sacred. One, one other thing is art. There is no place where humans are that there is no art in the room or even on your body. Why? Mm-hmm. Because God is aesthetic to his core and he put that in our genetics. Now, so uh, language, time, meals, art. What I notice about the nature of God in us, it is the most mundane, it is the most mundane parts of our existence, our conversations, our schedules, how we, how we decorate our, our, our lives and our environment, and the meals that we share. Our deepest divinity, and I don't mean that we are gods, but God's nature is in us. Our deepest divinity is in the most, most mundane things of our life. So that if you want to connect with God, if I could get devotional for our audience for a minute, if yeah, you want to connect with God, you can do it in the most mundane perpetual activities of your life. And that's his desire, not just to be with you where you are, but to inundate you with his own nature. That's good. That's good. Uh, especially the mundane part. I apologize. Yeah, no, that's just because you're a good preacher. Uh, we, we can't help ourselves, right? A sermon comes out. Um, but I, I, I have a question about that. One of the things, and I'm, I don't know if you know who uh, Michael Heiser is, Dr. Michael Heiser. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He, he's one of my favorite scholars. I'm afraid he's only got a couple weeks left to live, according mm. um, to his wife. Uh, cancer has just destroyed his body. But his understanding of it, and it's kind of the one that I've had for a while, he says, anything about the image of God that is something that you do, like if it's art or communication or setting the table, he says, then by definition, a newborn who can't do those things wouldn't be the image of God. And his his understanding of the text and the language is that it's imagers in the same way that somebody who educates is an educator, um, meaning that it's not something that you do. It's what you are, mm-hmm. that you are you're the you're the you're the totem pole. You're the idol. If people want to know what God is like, what is his image? They should look to his people to represent. Now, that image was broken when we left the garden. God restores it in believers. And we're not perfect images, but we should be uh, the reflection of his glory to the other things around. Um, Can these two be married together where it's what we are and also what we do? So that if somebody who couldn't do these things, they still have that image of God? Yeah, I, th- I, I, I do think they can. And here's, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, okay, I, I, I see his point that it is our, the image of God is our nature. Right. Our action comes out of our nature. Yeah. Do children eat communally? Uh they breastfeed, man. I don't know. I don't know how that's more more communal. And obviously, they're not eating at <laughs> yeah. a table together. Yeah. But there is a potentiality in a child that that starts. For example, at birth, 
children begin to mimic facial expressions. This is why we smile at a child to get them to mm -hmm. smile. That the if you see behavior as an outcropping of identity and nature, then even though a child cannot eat communally in the way we do or tell time in the way we do, it is inevitable that they will because God's nature is in them. The, so I think, I think Heiser is correct that it is our identity, but how do you see identity without seeing actions that derive from that identity? That's probably how I would think about the marriage of those two. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Uh, hey, I really appreciate everybody. Uh, thanks, Mark, for coming on. I, I loved having oh, you on the pleasure, podcast. Man. It was a great conversation. Great conversation. Uh, if people want to get uh, your books, I'm sure this is available on Amazon. You said your website isn't currently up and working right now? No, the, the website is up and working, but okay. just the links to Acts are not. So core52.org, markmore.org uh, has a ton of sermons things. But I need to ask you one question before I let you go. Yes, of course. Dog Backwards. That is the coolest yeah. name for any podcast that I've ever been on. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, it's just it's, it, Dog Backwards is God. So I couldn't think of what to name my podcast. You can't call it God Podcast. So uh, when you start I, these things... Because I, I have a strange sense of humor when you start these things. You're like, you know what? I might try to do 10 episodes. And then you, I've been doing it for a couple of years now. And, well, the name has had to stick. So, uh, yeah, Doc Backwards. It's one I people say, what's the, the name of your podcast? you had on here because I didn't even <laughs> see that until you said it. I just thought yeah. it was like a, a cool country song name or something. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you play uh, country backwards and you get your dog back. So, you know. Yeah. That's why we say we look at theology from a different angle and because I like the things that are kind of on the border, you know, um, probably what attracts me to Heiser and other things yeah. um, that are kind of on the edge. So I like to look at theology from from a different angle. And if you look at God from a different angle, spell it backwards, it's it's dog. So um, and for those of you who are listening, uh, you can go to calebmore.tv. Um, I have a book available on there instead of donating to the podcast. You can always buy my book. That's a great help. And I want to thank, uh, back 40 ministries for sponsoring us. Now, uh, our new lights and backdrop and setup was purchased by them. So thank you back 40 ministries. They have the goal to help children become adults through a rite of passage. Uh, mm -hmm. very much, uh, much of that has been through overseas missions and, uh, just, uh, just so everybody knows that's also my dad's ministry. So thanks dad for the new stuff, <laughs> but Mark, thanks so much for, uh, I'm gonna have to have you on again, uh, in the future. Um, and I know you've written a bunch of stuff, so we'll get some more books of yours in and we'll have you on again soon. Yeah. Greg, thank that. Or Caleb, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, sir. Peace. Peace.